You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today I'm with Jamie Taylor, who is running .NET Core in production to help power a search engine he wrote to search through Discworld books and characters. Jamie, welcome to the show. Thank you ever so much for having me on the show. It's a great pleasure to be here. Sure, no problem. So do you want to start off by introducing yourself and letting people know a little bit more about the app that we're going to be talking about today? Sure. Uh, Okay. So um, as you said at the beginning, I am Jamie Taylor. Um, I'm a .NET contractor at the moment. Um, I have... I've been working with .NET stuff for 11 years at this point, so I've got a little bit of experience. Um, mostly, traditionally, it's been in the Microsoft stack, but with .NET Core being released, that's now become um, a cross-platform open source thing. So it's helped me to be able to um, push people towards the Linuxes and the Unixes, because that's where I'm a little bit more comfortable I'm a little more comfortable using the Linuxes and, and Unixes of the world than I am with Windows. But, you know, they, they all achieve the same goal. It's a productivity tool to get you to do stuff on your computer at the end of the day. Uh, but yeah, so um, what I was hoping we could talk about today is uh, an app that I've written in .NET Core, which is split up into two parts. So I've got a back end and a front end. The front end is in Angular 2, so it's really old by this point. And uh, the back end is um, .NET Core, ASP.NET Core, EF Core. These are all words that you know may not mean very much to some of your listeners. Uh, it may mean a whole lot to some of your listeners. But that's the great thing about technology. There are so many new things to learn, so many different ways of achieving the same task. And I love looking into these different technologies and finding out what makes them tick and can I bring these things to other technologies or can I bring other th- other technologies to these things? Yeah, so definitely when it comes to .NET Core, that's like way outside my wheelhouse. So probably, yeah, about like, tw- I don't know, 10-ish years ago, I wrote like a native Windows, Windows application using C Sharp, but I'm, I still sometimes get thrown off by the terms. Like you mentioned .NET Core, but then like ASP.NET Core, but then I looked at your source code really quick and it was like in C Sharp. So how, do, how does that all come together? Sure. So um, .NET Core is a runtime for you to be able to run your applications. Um, it, it's essentially similar to like Node or um, I guess Go is kind of like a runtime in that it gives you a bunch of APIs that you can call to do things like, hey, write this to the screen or draw me a button here or send this message using UDP, that kind of thing. Um, and so C Sharp is one of the three languages that it supports. Um, .NET technologies have this weird thing where you can write parts of the app in one language and parts of the app in a different language and hit compile and they'll both compile into the same set of binaries, if that makes sense. So you have C Sharp, which is an object oriented, um, mostly statically typed, but partially dynamically typed language. You've got uh, F Sharp, which is a functional language that has both static and dynamic types. And there's VB.net, which is based on Visual Basic, which is based on Basic, which has that similar sort of um, protege of being the, in quotes, easier for non-developers to pick up language. Um, Hmm. And you can write portions of your app in all three of those different languages. And like I say, when you hit compile, 
they all get compiled down to an intermediary language, so like a, a middleman language, if you like. And then when you run it, the .NET runtime, be it .NET Framework, .NET Core, Mono, all of these hundreds of different technologies, there's really only really four, but all of these different technologies will then interpret those that code and swap it out for bytecode at runtime. So it's kind of a little bit like Java in that respect. Yeah, I was just thinking that. It's like, I actually don't really work with the JVM, but you can write Java code and Scala code, I guess, and they're both like able to go down into the same uh, whatever code the VM runs. Yeah, sure. And uh, similar with uh, Kotlin, is it? I don't know, don't do much with uh, Java. I have tried to build a native Android app, but it didn't get very far. <laughs> right. So you mentioned that you have a couple of language choices there with that netcore. You know, you mentioned uh, Visual Basic, which I have like a hidden love for because the first language I ever worked with was VB6. Good times. But uh, what made you choose C Sharp? Sorry, that's primarily from the point of view of experience. So, um, the majority of my .NET stuff has been in C Sharp, so I'm, I'm I kind of like the statically typed, object-oriented way of thinking about things. I am leaning more towards functional programming these days, and I want to take that up and learn a little bit more about how all that works. But yeah, the my entire background has been uh, object-oriented, so I started in C plus plus, and then did a little bit, like I said, a little bit of Java. Um, JavaScript is kind of object-oriented and functional, so when I write JavaScript, I tend to write object-oriented JavaScript, which upsets a lot of people that I work with, but uh, we won't really go into that. Um, but yeah, uh, the C-sharp stuff is just literally because I'm more comfortable with um, an object-oriented viewpoint, but I am leaning towards functional these days, so maybe I'll rewrite my apps in functional programming languages. I don't know. Hmm. So on that note, so if you were to rewrite uh, Discworld today, would you go for uh, F-sharp or would you just continue on with C-sharp? Oh, I'm, I'm always wanting to learn something new. So um, because I already have a version of it that is built and I know how the .NET Core side of it, like the APIs that I need to call, I know how they work. All I'm really doing is changing sort of that facade of the language. So yeah, I would happily swap over to F-sharp because my way of learning is I have two ways of, of learning, which is um, auditory, which makes it no good for learning languages and programming stuff. You know, back at university, we had to go, go read the book and you'll learn how to do it. And the problem is that I don't take it in by reading, but that's neither here nor there. And the other way is actually having something to build. So if I already have an app and all I'm doing is translating it from an object-oriented language to a functional language, the only thing that really changes there is the syntax. You know, I still know what I need to do to achieve the problem is that, sorry, I still know what I need to do to achieve the solution. I just need to change the syntax of how I'm presenting that solution, I guess. Right. No, that makes total sense. And I'm pretty much the same way. It's like, it's very hard just to like power through an 800 page book and, and learn something like you really have to build, at least for me. Yeah, totally. I totally agree. Um, that's why if I do pick up a book, I try to pick up the the, uh, the books that are written with a by example idea. So let's build an app together or let's build a solution together. And then I can see how the moving parts are, uh, are sort of slotting together and working. The, the purely theoretical side of it just does not work with me. I can learn how to do 
Um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get through a, a series of books called The Art of Programming by Donald Knuth at the moment, and it's very theoretical. It's all about the math behind all of the algorithms that we use and the uh, computer systems that we use. It's all the math side of it. And whilst I can do it, it's taking me very, very long time to get through it because it's all theoretical. There's no practical application of it. Right. So just to rewind a little bit here before we talk a little bit more about your application, can you just give people like a TLDR on what like Discworld even is and what your app does to like help navigate it? Sure. Okay. Um, so the Discworld series of books is a series of 40, I want to say 42. I know that someone's going to be yelling at me right now that it's 43 or 44. Um, there are that many that I've lost count, but they they're, they're, it's a series of books that all take place in the same universe with uh, characters bleeding across and storylines bleeding across between books and themes bleeding across as well. Um, they are presented in essentially sequential order. So to get the whole story, you start at book one and work your way through. Um, but it's also divided into um, series. So uh, they may be revolving around a specific character. So for the first few books, the main character was a wizard called Rincewind. Um, and then a few books later, there's a police force called The Watch. Um, and there are also um, a bunch of uh, rural witches. Um, and the idea is that you, you can either read them from start to finish, or you can go, I want to read the books that are about this one particular character, or I want to read the books that are about this one particular theme. Um, they are fantasy books, but they're comic, comic fantasy. And towards, towards the end of the, the series, the sort of fantasy elements were almost became like a background, like an implementation detail, essentially. You know, you have to agree that it's, the stories are set on a world that is flat like a disc that is uh, held up by four elephants that are standing on the back of a giant turtle who's swimming through space. Once you get, once you just accept that and move on, um, essentially the fantasy elements fall to the wayside and you're reading essentially humanist stories that all revolve around the people and the characters and the world that they live in rather than this is a fantasy story with magic and dragons and wolves and vampires. They just become just a little detail. Like there are characters who are vampires, but... Pratchett doesn't, that's the author, Terry Pratchett, he doesn't spend time talking about, and then they go and suck the blood of these people and go do this and verily this and all this kind of stuff. It's it's not very Dungeons and Dragons fantasy. It's more like real world people in that fantasy setting. And um, the app essentially catalogues all of the books, all of the characters, um, all of the locations, and essentially allows you to search for them. Um, so you can search for a character, say uh, my favorite character is Samuel Vimes. You can search for Samuel Vimes and it will tell you all of the books that he appears in. Um, or you can search for uh, the main city, which is called Ankh-Morpork, which is horrendous to spell. But it's uh, the idea is that it's a, a parody of um, a whole bunch of things. But you type in Ankh-Morpork and it will show you all of the stories that happen in Ankh-Morpork. Or you can type in 4X, which is F-O-U-R space E-C-K-S, which is a parody of Australia, because in the 80s and 90s, there was a, a beer called 4X, which was just X-X-X-X, and that was brewed in um, Australia, so that's why it's called that. But you can type in 4X, and it will tell you all of the stories that happen in that country, or that kind of thing. Um, and essentially, I started it because... 
Uh, I have um, the majority of the books in a hardback version, I guess, in storage, and I keep them because they're, you know, they're they're my uh, my collectibles, I guess. And I kept forgetting which ones I already owned. <laughs> so <laughs> I built a companion app for my phone. This is going back to when I said I tried to build something in Java that I used to catalog them. Um, it's a closed source app that I just run on my phone. I'm not interested in signing uh, keys and letting it out to the public because it's not very well written. Um, but essentially it uses the API to pull down all of the information about the books and then I have little check marks next to each book to tell me whether I have them as a hard book physical copy. Um, so it's essentially for that. It's a RESTful API, and it uses uh, gets and puts and deletes and all these kinds of things, and it uses security stuff. So why not let the API live out there, and then somebody could maybe use that as practice for um, doing gets and puts and posts and all that kind of stuff. Um, because there are hundreds of these APIs that already already exist, like the Pokemon API and uh, IMDB has an API and ESPN has an API that are usually free for you to access just to poke at to get some information out. And I thought it could be useful for people who want to have an API that is for Discworld stuff and learn how to do web stuff. I don't know. I, I thought I'd give it a try. Yeah, that's pretty cool because it sounds like, you know, you wrote this application to scratch your own itch kind of to, you know, to get that filtering process of whether or not you bought it. I like it. So that API then, is that publicly accessible then by anyone with no like sign up or rate limiting or anything like that? Sure. Uh, it's completely free and open source. Um, so the source code is on GitHub. Um, if you'd like, I can get you a link to that for the, for the show notes. Um, and there's the API itself. When you hit the API, um, you'll get a text Thing, uh, text. Uh, I think it's just uh, application text back with here are a bunch of uh, endpoints to hit and here are some examples. But then you can throw on forward slash swagger, which is an endpoint that um, exposes open API stuff. Um, I don't know whether you've used swagger before, but uh, or even open API. But this allows you to see a pre-built front end that uses the code as documentation and allows you to see oh that. Here's an endpoint that takes in an integer. I'll hit that endpoint and see what I get back. And it gives you examples. And you can push a button and see how to call it with, um, is it curl or C-U-R-L? I always pronounce that wrong. But uh, those kinds of things. And it shows you the example payload you should get back. So it's like a self-documenting API in that respect. Yep. Swagger is very cool. And we'll definitely drop in some links in the show notes where people can go and check that out. So you mentioned that the front end is using Angular 2. Was there a design decision that you made like in your mind to go with uh, an API backend with a JavaScript front end? Or is that just like how things are usually done with .NET Core? So .NET is kind of like a bring your own. You can do whatever you want with it. Um, .NET, well, technically ASP.NET Core. So as soon as you start diving into .NET, there's all sorts of different things that go along with it. I've already used loads of terms already. So we talked about .NET Core, which is the runtime. There's ASP.NET Core, which is um, an extension on an old technology called Active Server Pages, which is essentially just a web server for .NET Core, um, which uh, that supports a MVC or Model View Controller um, pipeline. So you can have, um, I'm, I'm sure that the listeners will know what these are, but you have a model that you can apply to a view and you can get to that via controller such that you hit a web page and it will, it will build the HTML for you, plug in a bunch of things from a model 
and then uh, send that straight back to you as generated HTML. Or you can have a web API, which is what I've built, which just allows you to do REST or uh, I can't remember the, the pronunciation. Is it, is it HATAOS or is hypertext as the um, envelope or something like that, where you get the response back and it tells you also you can go to this endpoint and that endpoint, but you can also do that. Um, I can't remember the the actual pronunciation of it, but yeah, I know what you mean though. Yeah, um, and then uh, so so with ASP.NET Core, you can either have that MVC front end or you can build a separate front end if you want. And what I decided with this was I wanted to explore how to build a front end in a technology that I was unfamiliar with. And at the time, it was a choice between Angular and React, or rather, yeah, Angular and React. I was going to say Angular JS and React, but that tells you how old this uh, this project is, I guess. Um, yeah, I built it in Angular 2 because just from the get-go, I could do um, ng build or ng new or whatever at the command line, and everything was built for me. And at the time, I think React's tooling was not not quite there, but uh, I have been looking at um, updating the Angular 2 to Angular, I believe 9 is the, the current um, new version that's just around the corner, and maybe building a React one as well, just so that then I have both and I can switch between them. Um, but the, the front end that I've built is actually at a completely different URL, which makes requesting the front end a little bit slow because when you load the front end, it has to then go poke the API to wake it up and wait for the API to wake up before it will run the front end, which is it's a failing on my part, but um, the the next version will have a do that asynchronously. So it will show you the, the front end and maybe with a little a little timer that just says, you know, just waiting for the API to, to warm up. How long is that warm up process for it to spin up? So it takes roughly two or three seconds for the API to spin up, but that's only if um, only if the API has not been accessed in, uh, I think it's in an hour or something like that. Uh, it's essentially, it's being hosted on Microsoft's Azure web platform for free. So uh, it doesn't cost me anything. So if they want to shut it down after an hour, I'm perfectly fine with that because <laughs> it only takes a few seconds to start back up. So because um, it's costing me nothing, I don't mind. Um, but I am thinking of moving it to um, maybe DigitalOcean or some other uh, cloud provider that doesn't shut it down. But then obviously there will be a cost involved in that. And I'll have to look into that. And I think I can get away with it for like 2 or $3 a month, which is, you know, it, it's money, but it's not a huge amount is what I'm getting at. That's like a coffee or something every month. Um, but yeah, the like I say, the spin-up time is just literally because the API hasn't maybe hasn't been accessed and just closes just to save memory, I guess. Okay, so that spin-up time it has nothing to do with like .NET Core spinning its wheels and doing stuff. It's just waiting for Azure to spin up the server, similar to like how Heroku's free plan works. Sure, that's literally it. Or if you've ever done anything with uh, IIS, which is um, I think it's the Internet Information Services that is provided by Windows on a Windows server. If you don't access a website which is on a Windows server for a number of uh, minutes, I think it's 25 minutes to an hour, then IIS itself will shut down the website because it's a memory hole. It's just sitting there using maybe 600 megabytes of RAM and not doing anything. So it shuts that down to clear it up so that it can... It can faster it can deal with other requests to other sites that are being hosted on the same box faster if that makes sense 
Wow, interesting. I have not heard that term IIS in a long time. So like way, way, way back in the day, I did use like ASP Classic. But yeah, nowadays I've, I've always been running some type of like, you know, Nginx or something on a Linux server. And uh, we'll get into that for sure in a little bit. But going back to your application, you know, you mentioned like MVC framework uh, or, you know, design pattern. So what, what database are you using in the back end to store all these bugs? So the, the app itself, the, uh, the API, uses a SQLite database. It doesn't use a SQLite server. It's just literally a .db file that's on the file system, um, which is, I guess, uh, fraught with a few issues. Like um, in, in a serverless world, I guess, you shouldn't really rely on files on the file system because you can't guarantee where your serverless stuff is going to be. But because this is being hosted in a server-like fashion, then I can assume that the files will always be there. But um, I also def uh, coded defensively around that. So there's a file-based database as a backup that is actually part of the deliverable in the source code. And what the code actually does is it says, do I have a database? No, okay, I'll create one and seed the database with this file-based uh, backup, I guess, which is just a couple of JSON files that represent the entirety of the, uh, the database. And if the SQLite file disappears, for whatever reason, it just recreates it on the fly, which is quite useful because there aren't, there's only one delete action. And to be able to do that, you need an administrative passphrase that only I have. Um, so the, the only way to drop the database is for, well, the only way to legitimately drop the database is for me to actually go on to the API and send a drop the database command. That command is uh, publicly available. So if someone wants to hit it and try and guess the password or, and there's no, no rate limiting on that. So if someone wants to brute force it, that's fine. But then, like I said, the next time somebody does a get, it will um, replace the database and put it back. So it uses entity framework core or EF core, as I've just been saying, to uh, talk to that SQL like database. Uh, entity framework is an object relation mapper mapper that's the one an orm which allows you to say here is my my um in this instance c sharp type this class that exists and here is the database table and entity framework does all of the the hard work of figuring out how to map that class to that table that type to that data store um, and it it has a whole bunch of uh, i think they call them I can't remember what they, they, there's a phrase that they use for the technologies to talk to uh, the database technologies. So they have a bunch of layers that are for SQL, for SQLite, for MySQL, Postgres, all of the different um, database technologies are all represented there. So you just tell Entity Framework, I'd like you to talk to a SQLite database. Here is the connection string and here are my models that represent the database. Go figure it out. And it kind of does it all for you. Yeah, that seems to be a pretty common thing that a lot of web frameworks have where you can just plug in a different database, but then there's also maybe some little subtle differences between, you know, like Postgres can do certain things that SQLite can't and, you know, vice versa. But that's like app level code stuff. Sure, definitely. And that's, I've always seen that as kind of like a, I'm sure that DBAs will be screaming at me right now, but the data store itself is kind of just an implementation detail at this point. You know, as long as your data is stored somewhere, all you're doing is writing the code to read the data from that data store, I guess. 
You you have no idea what you just unleashed. Like right now, like <laughs> every DBA is just face palming and like <laughs> coming at you. Oh, definitely, definitely. I mean, one of the things that I've been looking into recently is dropping that ORM layer and using something like uh, there's a library for .NET called Dapper, which allows you to write the actual queries and do that uh, management yourself. And it is a lot quicker because there's not the overhead of how do I figure out how to convert this .NET thing into this maybe SQL or NoSQL or, you know, that kind of command to get the data out. And then how do I hydrate it back? You take care of all of that yourself, which leads to faster code. But And that will teach me a lot more about how SQL works. But for this project, I don't need to do it because it's literally just doing select style from. <laughs> Plus, I mean, there's also trade-offs on that, right? I bet like if you go with the ORM approach, then suddenly you can do something like, I don't know exact terminology with C sharp, but it's like, you know, you have like a book class and then you can do like book that title, you know, like it's very object oriented. Sure. Yeah. Is that how that works with, uh, with your setup? Yeah, pretty much. Um, so the code itself uses a library provided by Microsoft called link. So that's R sorry, L I N Q, which is language integrated, something query or is it just language integrated query that's the one um and that uh, that exposes two different ways of doing things you can write sql like code where you can say from and then give it a collection name select a bunch of properties where something is true so you're almost like writing sql but um upside down if that makes sense um, and mm -hmm. the other way is that link exposes a bunch of extension methods, which are methods that don't actually exist on your properties, but we'll put them there. Um, and these extension methods allow you to say, I have a collection that's maybe an array or a list. And I can say literally collection name dot where and put brackets and use a Lambda syntax to put in what um, .NET calls a delegate, but for Node folks, it's a, a Lambda or for, you know that kind of thing. Um, and you put in a predicate. So you say books.where book.name is equal to, I don't know, um, Jeff or something. That's a really silly example. And it will, it will filter that book collection and just return you those which have the name Jeff, if that makes sense. It's kind of a bit like, I want to say it's a little like the map command in uh, JavaScript, I think that's right, where you can say just return from this collection, return me a subset which has this particular property set to a particular value. That's pretty cool. When it comes to like other parts of your tech stack, so you have the .NET Core backends, you're running, well, you just have like a SQLite database. Is there any other technologies that are a part of your application? Sure. So um, I'm looking into uh, the, the stack itself is about 18 months old. Um, at least the last change that I made to it was 18 months ago. But I'm looking into how to put all of that together inside of a Docker or a Docker-like container and use, um, I think it's Docker Compose to create essentially the whole thing as one app, if that makes sense. So I'm looking into taking those two parts, that UI and that API, putting them behind a Docker Compose file and just being able to do Docker Compose up and both come up at separate endpoints. Um, so that's something I'm looking into because once I've got it to the point where I'm going to move it, maybe I'll move it from Azure to somewhere else like DigitalOcean, Linode or Google Platform or any of those other, you know, the hundreds of other uh, providers. Once I've done that, I want to host them both as two separate endpoints, but on the same 
um, machine, if that makes sense, on the same server instance. Yeah. Um, so I'm looking at wrapping it into a Docker container um, and and putting it out there as one thing. And then, you know, you don't, at that point, you don't have to pull the code to get that. You could then pull from the Docker hub and get both of those in one file, I guess. Mm-hmm. So yeah, if you if you created a couple a separate Docker image for each one of them, then uh, Compose can kind of compose them together, and, and you can run them all in one command. That's what I'm looking into. Yep. Yeah, Docker is a fun technology. Now, you know, you mentioned a server and Azure a couple of times. All of this is running on one Azure like free machine. Do you get to pick the specs for that, or is it kind of just like you get what you get from that? When I first set it up, I can't say for now, but uh, when I first set it up, it was just literally a case of you get some free compute time on a on a machine which is running, you know, whatever. Uh, they don't actually tell you the specifications. They use, or at least they didn't then. Um, they use these really vague terms like can handle this many requests and has this much um, storage space, you know, that kind of thing. Because from my understanding of it, um, Azure is a huge network of primarily FPGAs, which are then programmable and switchable and, you know, limited and all that kind of stuff. There's a lot more that goes into it, I'm sure. Uh, and I'm sure I'm dumbing it down so much. But uh, from my description, from my descriptions, from my uh, discussions with a bunch of insiders in Azure, I mean, they, the Microsoft folks are so open about this. Yeah, they even let you uh, go to the Azure um, data warehouses and actually walk around and see the whole thing in action if you uh, put in the right request. But um, because they're so open, I was talking to a few of their engineers two or three years back, and one of them said, yeah, yeah, well, the entry points are all FPGAs. or They are all powered by FPGAs once you get past the firewalls and all of the ingress stuff. Um, so, yeah, they don't give you any kind of... They don't say, yes, you will get a one gigahertz machine running uh, with, I don't know, two gigs of RAM and four gigs of hard drive space. You just get, like you say, you get what you're given, um, at least for the free tier. I think for the for the really expensive tier, you can you can rent um, VMs that have, excuse me, 128 cores and maybe a terabyte of RAM or something stupid like that, you know, because why not? <laughs> because And they're able to just switch those on. So it must be partly programmable, I guess. Interesting, yeah. So I have mostly experience with like DigitalOcean, AWS, Google's platform. I've never really used Azure. So I kind of anticipated maybe you would have to have, have managed your own machine. Like you just get a blank copy of Ubuntu or like whatever operating system you want. And then you just put whatever you want on that. But it's sounding like way different than that. This almost sounds like, like a managed platform. Like you get this, this, and this, and like you just tell it somehow to get your code and it, and it runs it. Like how does it actually work? Sure. So there's um, at least... When I last worked with Azure uh, for this project, um, there are two offerings. There's infrastructure as a service and platform as a service. So you can rent a VM in that classic sense of I have some hosted uh, storage space. I've got a hosted VM. And you know the downside to that, as we all know, is you are then in charge of making sure that VM is up to date and has relevant anti-malware steps and security things. I mean, there, there are checkboxes you can tick that help with that setup, but then you still have to bring your own licenses for any software that you're using. And you could do that for uh, Azure at the time was offering Windows and Linux-based systems. I believe it's Ubuntu-based. Um, 
so yeah you can totally pull those things in and you know just rent a virtual machine um but the the way that i've done it is it's um you push a button and you tell it go get my code and it figures out what it needs to install to run your code if that makes sense so i have a ci cd a continuous integration continuous deployment platform that I use for um, the Discworld API that as soon as I make a change in, in GitHub, um, it will push that change out, the change will be built, and then that will then be deployed onto the, the Azure platform for me. And then, like I say, the Azure wizardry comes along and goes, oh, it's .NET Core, but it's using, my, it's using SQLite. I can get away with using maybe a Linux machine because then that runs uh, smaller and faster and tighter and is cheaper. Um, so then presumably it fires up an Ubuntu machine or something similar and then figures out how to host that and point the world to it. Um, it's wonderful from a dev perspective because then I don't have to worry about, okay, so I need to set up a server, I need to set up a reverse proxy, and I need to set up load balancing, and all of these hundreds of things just all go away. They're no longer a concern. Yeah, yeah, this is sounding very much like Heroku, but not quite. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I had all sorts of questions in my mind. It's like, well... How do you deal with like SSL certificates and configuring IIS? Like, did you pick Windows or Linux? But it sounds like all of these are just out of scope for what you even have to think about. Yeah, yeah. And you even get a free HTTPS certificate for your site. The way that it works is because it's on the free tier, all of the URLs have to end in .azurewebsites.net. So whatever you build is a subdomain of that. So they give you a, uh, I think it's a wildcard HTTPS so it will be, so for instance, the Discworld API, I believe, is DWCheck API. So that's D-W-C-H-E-C-K-A-P-I dot AzureWebsites.net. And because it's hanging off of the AzureWebsites.net, it has the HTTPS certificate for AzureWebsites.net and just works. So yeah, I don't even have to worry about that. If I decide that I want to pay some money um, towards the Azure hosting, I can then apply my own uh, domain name and then I can either bring my own certificate or buy one through the Azure portal. Um, but then applying that is just a case of here is my PFX and here is the key to open the PFX and it's done. <laughs> so what's uh, what's a PFX? So the PFX is the... Um, is the signed private key that represents your um, HTTPS uh, certificate, I believe. It all gets a bit murky for me at this point because that's that's something I don't quite understand 100%, but it's um, you'll create... Uh, I've used uh, OpenSSL in the past to create a signing certificate, which is a self-signed certificate that you send off to a certificate authority They'll do some uh, crypto stuff to it and return you um, a PFX, which is, as far as I can tell, a massive um, encrypted private key. You then give that to whoever your hosting provider is and they do whatever wizardry it is to then provide you with the certificate or when you request the website. Okay. Yeah, I totally know what you mean. I've actually just never heard that term PFX before like that. Oh, okay. Interesting. So you kind of speeded through your deploy process almost before in like sort of okay detail but just to rewind do you want to just go for us step by step like how does this code get from your dev box onto the server oh yeah sure uh so what i do is everything is is um stored in github um and you know i'll do a, a pull or clone or whatever 
make a change, do a push. Um, I do, I do tend to use Git flow, but I know that's a bit controversial, but that's just so that I can manage where my features are and stuff. Um, I do a push to master and what will happen, either a push to master or a pull request into master. And what happens is I use a system called AppVeyor, and that's A-P-P-V-E-Y-O-R. There are hundreds of other CI systems out there, Travis CI, Circle CI, all that kind of stuff. And what happens is AppVi, uh, sorry, AppVeyor knows that there is a change in GitHub because GitHub exposes what are called Git hooks which is something from Git because GitHub is just a wonderful UI around, well, in my opinion, a wonderful UI around uh, the Git service. And the Git hook essentially just says, when a push to master or a pull request into master is made, go send something to this HTTP endpoint. And the HTTP endpoint is for AppVeyor. AppVeyor is then poked and told, hey, you got to go build this. So then AppVeyor does a Git clone and reads a config file, which I believe is a YAML file, um, inside of the repo. And that YAML file describes how to build the um, the application, which, uh, which operating system to use, which build tools it needs, all that kind of stuff. The standard sort of DevOpsy things. Um, it then reads that, sets up a, an environment, runs through the build, and gives me a binary that I can then, if I want to, download onto my machine and run. Um, it then goes, this is a build for master. I will then create a release. So then it kicks off a CD, a continuous delivery uh, pipeline, which is exactly the same. It just uses the same stuff, uses an API uh, key and value and SSH and all that kind of stuff that talks to Azure and says, hey, uh, Jamie's application DW check API has a brand new version. Here is the package. Go do whatever it is that you need to do to run it. And then I get an email saying it's been deployed and it's ready for you to try out. And then I go to the, the website and I check it and it works. Nice. So that app there, uh, is that some alternative to Azure Pipelines or is it like some like subsection of that? Oh, this is a completely separate thing. So um, at the time that I started working on this API, um, the, the Azure DevOps pipeline stuff uh, wasn't um, really around. It had they just started releasing it and rolling it out saying, yeah, you can build stuff, but you can't publish it. Or you can publish it, but you can only publish it to these two or three different things. And it was part of my my um, journey into not being so tied to the Microsoft platform. And there's nothing, in, in my opinion, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. But um, I wanted to see how other services did it. I had known about CircleCI and Travis CI. But I just sort of Googled around to see what the other systems were because the way that I felt about it was, well, Travis CI and Circle CI and all the others are really well documented. This one at the time, AppVeyor at the time, wasn't really well documented. And if I needed to, I could push a, a deployment manually. I had a HTTP endpoint that I could just push all the files to and it would just work. So I thought, why not go through the process of learning how to use this system that isn't really well documented just so that I can figure out how it works. And that's what I did. I just uh, I learned what a YAML file was and how to format it. And I went through the, uh, they have a UI that you can use to build all up. I built it all up in the UI, uh, then exported the YAML file that was generated for me, ditched that and then re-imported the YAML file just because then I thought if I ever lose access to it, at least I've got this file that represents how to build it. 
if that makes sense. And maybe that YAML file can be imported into some other build process. And I think they're all pretty much standard now. So I could just import it into CircleCI or into Azure DevOps or any of the other hundreds and hundreds of other CI, CD pipeline systems, I think. Yeah, no, that's a good move to have that available. You mentioned that just deploying the application, like it really just comes down to, to just moving a single binary over to the server and then that's it. Like there's no, like a lot of other languages and frameworks, like you have to install dependencies and do other things like that. This is all just rolled up into one binary. Yeah, so... um I don't. I think it's partially the uh, .NET Core build system and partially Azure. Um, I I feel like the designers of Azure want it to be really simple to to use. So when you create your server space, your service, that you they they use the word app service uh, for their basic web services. I believe when you create that, you tell it, "I want to run a .NET application." That's all you need to really tell it. Um, and then you throw it some files and it figures it all out itself, which is wonderful because then it takes all of that complexity away. It puts the complexity on them, but it takes all of the complexity away. So you don't have to, like you say, you don't have to install dependencies. You don't have to install versions of the framework or the runtime or any tools or anything. You just go, here are some files, serve it for me, please. And it just figures it all out. You know, you, you have two different apps, right? You have your API backend and you also have the Angular front end. So when you do a, a deploy of like a new front end change for the Angular app, is that all just also self-rolled into that one binary, like the static files, like the CSS files? That's it, yeah. So when I make a change to the to the uh, UI, a similar app fair build happens. Uh, nothing really needs to happen, just to sort of linting and making sure that I've not done anything silly with JavaScript. Because, you know, it's very easy to get JavaScript wrong, in my opinion. So it does all of that kind of stuff for me, zips it all up, and sends it up as a zip file. And then Azure does whatever magic it does to figure out how to serve it. Yeah, that sounds pretty cool. Because it's almost like, it's not really the same as Docker, but uh, what Docker allows for other frameworks that aren't a single binary deploy, it's like you almost get this one artifact that you pull down like a Docker image, but it's almost like, you know, you're already getting at least that part of the benefit, like just as part of .NET. Sure, sure. And it, it makes it really simple. <laughs> I can't really, uh, I, I don't want to sit here and say everyone should move to Azure because that's not the way that uh, that works because I'm not a Microsoft employee, I'm not an Azure person. But what I'm saying is that from my perspective, it was super simple. Just push a button and receive bacon, you know what I mean? <laughs> yep. So you mentioned that, uh, you know, the source code is open source and I'll for sure link to that in the show notes. But so does that mean like anyone who's running Linux or Mac OS or Windows, they can still, you know, as long as they have .NET Core framework installed, like they can run this on any operating system? Sure. Um, as long as you're running one of the supported um, Linuxes um, or OS X or Windows 10, because I believe that .NET Core version 2 dropped support for Windows 7. Um, I'm not entirely 100% sure on that, but uh, that's from memory. Um, and the, the supported Linuxes, because uh, that's the that's the phrase that they use, are things like uh, Ubuntu V latest and Fedora V latest. I don't know what the <laughs> I don't know what the numbers are because um, uh, I'm not a Fedora user, but I want to say forty something. <laughs> I don't know what the numbers are off the top of my head, but yeah, as long as it's one of the one of the up to date Linuxes or a Windows ten or Mac OS. 
uh, I want to say three versions back. So it's not Catalina, it's not whatever this laptop's running. Um, it's the one before that. So it's you know a relatively new version of Mac OS, relatively new version of Linux uh, distribution, or a relatively up-to-date Windows 10. You just need to install the .NET Core runtime. Um, so the SDK and runtime are two separate things. The SDK contains the runtime because you need to be able to run your applications whilst you're building them. But if you don't need to build them, then they ship a runtime separately, which is something that was missing from .NET Framework. So there's the two things there, Framework and Core. Um, core is the cross-platform, uh, the, the, sorry, the open source cross-platform variant of .NET. And .NET Framework is the Windows-only uh, variant and .NET Framework was an SDK and a runtime, which made it very large and um, a little slow, if I'm honest. You know, starting things up took a little, little longer than starting things with .NET Core. Um, but .NET Core itself is split into an SDK and a runtime. As long as you have the runtime installed, then you can you can run the application. If you want to pull the source code and build it and run it, um, I think there's steps in the README, but it is literally running a single command or pushing uh, F5 inside of your ID and it just takes over the build and starts running. Right. So, wow. <laughs> you just threw out like 700 different new terms <laughs> to look up. .NET world is big, but, you know, it's very featureful. And you mentioned IDE and like back when I was working with um, a C-sharp app a long time ago, yeah, Visual Studio back then, it, w it was nice just to be able to, you know, hit that play button and like, Everything you needed just happens there. A great debugger, really good autocomplete. So, are, are, I mean, this is a little bit off topic for the show, but are you using uh, Visual Studio or something else? So, I mean, I mentioned earlier on uh, that I'm more of a Linux user, so I can't use Visual Studio in my day-to-day -day building of applications. Mm -hmm. um, but there is a Visual Studio code, which is sort of like a stripped-down, what's the technology it uses? Stripped-down Electron-based IDE. It's more of a more of a text editor than an IDE in that you have to install plugins to get IDE features, but it comes with a, a debugger for .NET Core, and you can get it working with .NET Framework as well. Uh, so I use that for smaller projects, and for slightly larger projects, I use a, a product from the JetBrains team called Rider. Um, if you've ever done uh, C-sharp .NET stuff and used a, a system called ReSharper, then they make that too. Uh, Rider is essentially a cross-platform IDE with ReSharper built in um, and that does the majority of things that Visual Studio does. Uh, it doesn't do a, a number of things like database exploration and stuff like that, but I don't do that <laughs> in my day-to-day -day development, uh, so I don't really miss those features. Right. Yeah, that definitely answers the question. Sorry, I, I kind of laughed when you were talking about like, like a stripped-down electron because that's like... <laughs> What's that word? Like an oxymoron, I think. Oh, definitely, <laughs> definitely. I mean, it is running a full Chromium browser on my machine to be able to edit text files. It's 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 ridiculous, is what it is. <laughs> but you know, I do have to give Microsoft a thumbs up about VS Code. Like, I don't use it personally anymore, but for what it is, like, they've done a good job of optimizing it. They really have, and that's entirely open source too. So you can make pull requests for things like, oh, uh, I can see that. The way that it's handling uh, terminal uh, communications isn't brilliant, so I'll go and fix that. Make a pull request. You've now committed to a Microsoft product that everyone in the .NET world is using. So, you know, we talked about your deploy process before. Everything is cool. Everything is running in production now. I mean, 
you're using the pass offering from Azure. So they, I mean, do they take care of things like database backups and do you have any alerts set up? Like if for whatever reason the web app stops working, do you get notified somehow? So if I was using a database server, then yes. Um, the way that Azure handles database servers is uh, every transaction is then used as a backup log. So if you notice that yesterday someone made a transaction to the database that did something weird, that maybe wiped out a record or wiped the database, you can rewind back to that point, take that transaction out and go forward from there, um, which is really quite useful. And they also do replication across three servers. So when you rent a database server, you actually get three and then you get like eventual consistency between the three. But uh, yeah, because it's just a static file, the uh, I think I think it's called database.db, which is a ridiculous <laughs> file name. But if that file disappears, then yeah, it will recreate it. So I don't have um, any kind of server side monitoring of the database, uh, but I do have some monitoring to tell me how many times people hit that delete uh, action because it is literally a you send a HTTP verb of delete to a specific API endpoint and I get to see what people are trying to see if they know what the password is you know people have used password one two three and all that kind of stuff and it hasn't uh, hasn't gotten through so far because uh, it's a I believe when I set it up I used the password manager and it's a 48 character long letters numbers special symbols all that kind of stuff it will it is crackable but even so like i say if if somebody manages to delete the database it's sort of self-repairing it'll go oh there's no database i'll regenerate it no i think you're safe with uh, a 48 character <laughs> password is pretty strong but although personally like that would make me i would feel very uneasy sleeping at night knowing that someone can somehow guess it even though it's like super unlikely sure you know the reason why i made it sort of self-healing was for that eventuality. Eventually, someone's going to guess the code, guess the passphrase or whatever, and it will wipe that database out. But then the next time that somebody puts a request into any other endpoint, it will recreate the database. So, it, And even then, it's an API that I built for fun. It's not, you know, I wouldn't do this for a real API that deals with customer or client data. You know, there would be lots of checks and balances in place and lots of uh, database backups and I would use an actual server for things for the database and all that kind of stuff. So this is just for fun. I don't mind um, if somebody manages to crack the database uh, code and wipes the database because at the end of the day, it's not a, a vital system. No one's going to be harmed physically if something like this breaks, you know? Right. So is this still an application though that you personally use yourself every once in a while to search through stuff? Oh, definitely. Um, Occasionally, I will go to, um, you know, eBay or a secondhand bookshop. There's loads of secondhand bookshops in the UK. I'll go to these small secondhand bookshops, and I'll I'll look through the the what they have on their shelves, and I'll think, oh, do I have that? Uh, I don't know. So I'll pull up the like I say the app that I have on my phone that talks to the API, and checks them all off, and I'll use I'm poking the real API um, to get the data. I've used that phrase a lot these days, poke the API, not request, probably not the right word to use. But um, yeah, so the app on my phone is making real requests to the real API to show me the data on these uh, on these uh, books. And then the phone has, my phone has a, a database that's on there that is uh, a list of the books that I own. But it's fun to just sort of look through the, I say fun. <laughs> I'm part of a, a, a group of people, I'm part of a... Um, 
a book club that is currently reading through a bunch of the Pratchett books. So I'll remind myself before we go into uh, our meeting or whatever, after having read the book, what the book was about. So maybe I only read it two or three days ago, but I want to cover some of the, the basic points. I'll pull it up and I'll, I've got some trivia in there as well for uh, characters that are only partially mentioned. There's a lot of things in the, in the Pratchett universe, I guess, where a character is mentioned in passing by someone but then turns up three books later. You know, they, they didn't exist before before that book that they were in three books later, but they were mentioned earlier on, that kind of thing. So it's fun to see all of those little references pop up. And I've got all of those on my phone via the same API as well. Yeah, so that sounds like that's something that would, would be very, very hard to track. Like, even if you were, like, a hardcore fan, like, you would almost need to have, like, a photographic memory. <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably, yeah. To do it manually, I mean. Like, what are some of your, uh, like, best tips and, and lessons learned from developing this application? Were I to do this application again, um, I would take a, um, is it domain-driven approach? Sort of like a data-driven approach and build it around the data rather than how I think it should be used. So I've put the data into a relational database. So one book has many characters. A character has a name, uh, those kinds of things. And um, one series can have many books, but then it gets complex because one book can have many series. So you get this sort of dual uh, foreign key relationship between entities and it gets really complex to manage, um, at least from a I'm building this in my spare time and I want it to just run fast uh, perspective. But yeah, if I was to rebuild it, uh, there's already some stuff in there that uh, it is called the Discworld API, but the JSON backup files that it uses you just change the data in that and you get a completely different api so one of the things that i tried was um i thought well what if i changed it to say the stephen king novels and i took a local copy of the entire system and put into my json files there's a file for books a file for characters and a file for um series and i created a few entries in the books um file that represented a number of Stephen King novels and then added characters to my character file which referenced the books and then separated them into series and it just works so uh, what I'm saying is that the code kind of it's it's a little janky in places but it kind of just works for if you want to build a generic book API that represents the series in in a in a canon I guess of books uh, but the problem is that it's not the code isn't very elegant, so were I to do it again, I would go back and actually look at my data store, look at what I want to represent, and build it up from there. So, yeah, I think my biggest takeaway from building the API, at the very least, is know the data, or at least as much about the data as possible, before building the application. Right. Yeah, that is sound advice. But, I mean, with that said, like what you just said... It sounds like you did a really good job if, if you can drop in a completely different set of books and it, and it all just works. That, that's unexpected and really cool. Oh, thank you. Um, it does work, but there's a lot of there's a lot of kind of boilerplate code that does a lot of checks that don't need to be there. So uh, when you create, so like I said, I have the book file and I have a characters file, but to reference to um, to link a character to a book. They, the, book, the book titles need to both be spelt exactly the same because uh, it does a string lookup. So then uh, spaces matter and uh, non-printable characters matter. So if you're using 
CLRF rather than just uh, RF or the, whatever it is for um, text storage that then affects it. In in a different world, I would redo that so that it would maybe use IDs or some form of better lookup system. And I have noticed that in the data, I do end up with uh, duplicated characters because um, the it's a one book has multiple characters relationship, and then. I've added into my original data store multiple copies of the same character and there isn't a check for that. It just goes, yeah, I will add those to the database. So there's a character called um, Carrot and he's called Carrot because physically he has the shape. He's a tall, broad-shouldered, very heavy-set character in the Discworld books and he's uh, very muscular. So he has almost like a cartoon shape of a, of a carrot, if that makes sense. Thin legs, wide shoulders. He skipped leg day, essentially. <laughs> and he, in my data set, in that original data set, appears three times. And in the database, appears three times. But the way that I've written the code, it only pulls the character from the database once because I've had to put the extra checks in there because I know that the system is flawed, if that makes sense. Yep. So were I to do it again, I would work from a data up so then I wouldn't end up with multiple copies of the same character or copies of the same data, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. So on that note, Jamie, thanks a lot for coming on the Running in Production podcast. It was really great talking with you. Uh, before we wrap this up, I mean, do you have any links that you want to share, like maybe a Twitter account or LinkedIn, GitHub, whatever you want? Sure. Uh, well, like I say, all of the code is available on GitHub. And, you know, I could, uh, that's either github.com slash gaprogman that's one of my old handles, G-A-P-R-O-G-M-A-N. And we, I'm sure I can send that for the show notes. Um, but I also, uh, I'm on Twitter as .NET Core Show. So that's D-O-T-N-E-T-C-O-R-E-S, sorry, S-H-O-W. Possibly the worst Twitter handle to ever have to read out. <laughs> but yeah, that's a rough one. But that's essentially because I do, uh, I think we mentioned it earlier on, a podcast specifically about .NET Core. And I wanted to have that um, that that Twitter handle so that people go, oh, it's the .NET Core show, you know, rather than Jamie at podcast dot thing, you know, some, stupid, mm-hmm. some crazy like that. That's what I wanted. I wanted the .NET Core show rather than something random like Jamie's podcast about .NET or something. Yeah, that totally makes sense. <laughs> so that sounds good. And um, thanks again. And on that note... Sorry, I was just going to say uh, thank you very much for having me on the show. It's been wonderful talking all sorts of tech with you. I, I love to spend my time talking tech with anyone. No problem. And on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running In Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.